Welcome to AppEtc, conversations with founders and leaders of product businesses in the Salesforce ecosystem. Today, I'm speaking with Richard Clark, the Chief Technology Officer at Provar. Provar helps you navigate the ever-changing Salesforce landscape with a code-free, point-and-click, automated test solution. I speak with Richard about his entry into the Salesforce ecosystem and his experience working at two Platinum Salesforce SI partners and how he got started at Provar. We cover his experience with the Salesforce Certified Technical Architect Review Board and how, even though he didn't pass, it didn't hold him back becoming a CTO at Make Positive and later Provar. We then touch on a topic that's always on Richard's mind, testing and specifically testing as it relates to Salesforce and Lightning. I actually got involved first with CRM without realizing it. So after I left university back in the late 80s, I ended up working at a software house who were producing what I didn't know. We called it a prospecting system and a, we called it a freight forwarding documentation generation system. It was actually a CRM. We had accounts, we had contacts, things like that. And I think many of us have been through multiple careers and done multiple projects as system integrators where we've actually built customer databases and I worked at a company back in the early noughties called uh, Smart for 21. And I met a couple of guys there called Artin and Rob. And when that company was acquired by KCOM, uh, they left. They were in the sales team, but they were both technical before and formed BrightGen. And they said to me, hey, Rich, what are you doing? <laughs> you bought a new car. You're having some uh, time off at the moment. What are you doing? I, I said, oh, I enjoy my time off playing Assassin's Creed. And those were the days back in about 2007. And they talked to me about Salesforce. They talked to me about the fact that they'd been using Salesforce at Smart 21. And they saw the future of SaaS applications. And they wanted to build the next Salesforce. So it's come a long oh. way from there. <laughs> so I joined them. We started doing projects. We started doing a lot, quite a lot of Atlassian plugins, actually, Java development. Hired a really smart guy called Keir Bowden, <laughs> yeah. who most people might have heard of, Bob, uh, Bob Buzzard. Uh, and yeah. we basically ended up falling into Salesforce from trying to emulate some things. When Apex came out, we started to build things on Apex. Uh, we even built some S controls, put some things on the app exchange that came out at the right time. And that was really how I got started into that. And one thing after another, various personal uh, things in my life, moving locations, contract periods. Yeah, I ended up ultimately from several projects at Make Positive. That was probably the first time as a CTO, I was able to really work on Salesforce products as a full-time basis. So I spent three years there and working quite heavily on things like the Passport application. Uh, we had a community app. Uh, I can't remember. You Connected, it was called. And then Salesforce Communities came out. So that was that year's Roadkill application. And it was based on Heroku. It was actually quite good, unfortunately. And that's really been the journey I've taken through that. So a lot of your time at Make Positive was actually working on product rather than... It was supposed to be working on product, but it ended up being more... It moved over the time to be more so eighty twenty at the end, more helping yeah. the consulting team, working on something called Better PLC, which was effectively a retail accelerator. So we did quite a lot of things with Service Cloud and things like that, where I actually quite learned quite a lot about integration with CTI systems, that kind of thing. So actually, a very useful project, but ultimately it was just an accelerator rather than a product. But yeah, so at that time I met Garrett and Paul, the founders of Provar. And they had this cool product, this Eclipse application for doing API testing. They'd been using it on Salesforce. And, I, and they were talking to me about, is it possible to do UI testing, these J underscore IDs in VisualForce? That's a bit of a challenge. How do we get around that? They're not pretty sticky. And I said, oh, God, yeah, don't use those. And it, we realized there was something they could do. And I introduced them to the metadata API and off they went. 
And then I actually bought it twice as a customer until finally uh, I'd uh, been at a customer, uh, bought the product and my contract there finished. And the guys messaged me, they'd just come back from Dreamforce say, look, we've got to grow quicker. Uh, so much demand for this product. And that's really how I ended up at, at uh, Progar. Joining Progar, was it a conscious decision to move into a product business? Yeah, so I've always preferred product over consulting. It's just that I like doing things once and solving a problem once. And when you're consulting, quite often you have the same discussions, you have the same meetings to convince people why they should do things a certain way. And you have to be a lot more gentle. With product, you can make decisions faster and you can fail faster. So someone used an analogy earlier, it was about some decisions are one-way doors and some decisions are two-way doors. So as long as you what kind of door you're going through, with products, you can take a lot more decisions much faster. And I, I like that agility. During that time, you went through the Certified Technical Architect review board process um, quite early on. Not early enough in a way, because um, I think at that time when you were at Tequila and you had your CTA program which Wes and Cameron were running, which was very successful. And it was a requirement, wasn't it, for UK SIs to get at least one platinum certificate, to be platinum, to get at least one. Yeah, to be platinum at the time, you needed a CTA. So uh, I was the sacrificial goat. (laughs) So my... This is a make positive. This is a make positive. So myself and Francesco were signed up and some other candidates got through. Obviously, the first phase was easy. The second phase, multiple choice, I passed first time and the others all failed. And I was like, oh, I had to do retakes. I was like, oh, I might do my stuff here. And then it came to the review board. And the review board was quite interesting, I've got to say. It was something that is a unique experience, shall we say. 100%. I've, I've never had anything like that before in my life. But I, I hadn't had any of their prep. So I think they've been investment a couple of years before. Sales was really invested in their partners with training. With They may have been at night times, but real uh, dry runs and things. So I went into that cold. I went into it. It was a sacrificial goat to learn some lessons. What's the process like? Um, and I was able to communicate that back to the team saying, look, it's not two sides of an A4 page. It's five sides. And it's really small font. (laughs) And 45 (laughs) minutes is not enough time to prepare anything. And don't bother playing with PowerPoint. Just do it all on the uh, whiteboard. And the more you do as you draw as you go, the better it uses time. So I think when I did my first part of my review board, I finished in 27 minutes in that 45 minutes presentation bit. And even though I knew that would give them 18 minutes extra to question me, um, I couldn't stop myself going quickly. I couldn't stop the adrenaline going. I just couldn't do any slower. I just hadn't practiced. It's so hard. At Tequila, like you said, we had Wes and Cam go through the process probably the year before, I think, I attempted. And when they did it, they were, there was a bit of a partner training program with it. I seem to remember they were on some webinar sessions and to people in San Fran and, and giving them a bit of a guided experience through the process. Not really helping them with the answers, but mm. just talking them through the process and coaching them a little bit. Exam technique, isn't it? And then when I did it, at the the Dreamforce before I sat, I I forget even when I sat it, I think it must have been the summer or the spring. Uh, The Dreamforce before that, there was a a partner thing the afternoon before Dreamforce, basically, where there was about 20 or 30 architects and different SIs got in the room and they went through some mock processes with us so that was quite beneficial and actually in the room I felt that I was very fortunate to have had the experience that Wes and Cam had had because there were a lot of people that just hadn't had that coaching so there was just coaching in the process this is what it's going to look like 
this is how you can approach it. I've done a couple of mocks with Wes and Cam at that point. So you, I've got my time management down in terms of what did you need to pull out and extract to answer the questions. But even circulating around when I was doing it, there was a couple of mock papers written by Salesforce, which were nowhere near like the real <laughs> thing. Like they had like... Uh, just small things that really that made it easier. Uh, the bullet points in terms of the number of users or number of records they wanted. They spoon-fed you some of the data points, whereas in the real thing, that was peppered throughout and cooled back in different sections. Mm. Uh, like they were trying to trick you, basically. Well, it's a bit like the multiple choice exams. I assume they're still the same in that you, you see an answer. That's the best answer. And I always <laughs> say to people, yes, it's the best answer, but it doesn't exist in the product. It's a honey trap. Don't fall for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so that's the key, and I think one of the when I, one of the the classic failures of when I've been coaching other people is not not to pitch Salesforce products as well. Is always a classic one. <laughs> if there's a Salesforce product that does something, and you you bring in some kind of third party, it's like, what are you doing? So I think that's quite an interesting uh, a process. I think so, so. You went through that. You were yeah. the sacrificial lamb, basically, and and were to take back probably a lot of learning to well, other people. Well, that was but, the plan, but you know what it's like. You go in there and you can't be so what was it about? It was about some people installing rooftop gardens, yeah, and I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> it was just more the process. That was the biggest sharing. It's, I, you, I know what you mean. It's like a, that adrenaline is yeah. a bit like in Men in Black. They wipe, the, mm. wipe your memory. <laughs> Maybe like they did that. Maybe that happened. <laughs> <laughs> But I remember the case study section was there when I last did it. And that part, absolutely now, because I've done a product, project for Redgate, actually, which was quite successful, a lot of integration. The first project I've ever done where the customer asked us to extend the deadlines and it come up for rollback strategy after migration. I was like, but no one ever rolls back from Salesforce. But they asked us to do it to their credit. They did things properly. The project was a success. It was delivered on time, worked. And it was a fantastic case study because of all the integrations with things like HubSpot and other things. It was quite good. I think the idea of having the, the case study was really valuable. And it also set the expectation that unless you've done something to this standard that meets these architectural areas, then you probably shouldn't be doing the exam in the yeah. first place. And that's the thing I think a lot of us took away. I had Wes's output to learn from, and yet I still knew I had to study more and more on single sign on OAuth and things like that. And I studied it. I could draw all the pictures that were in the book, but I didn't understand it. I didn't know what really happened. So unless you've rolled up your sleeves and you've done it and you've looked at the cookies and you really know what's going on, uh, luckily, Franco took it after me. He wrote a book on SQL sign-on about 10 years <laughs> before. So he actually knew that stuff pretty damn well, and he's a smart guy anyway. So for some people, it, it definitely favors the technical people, the technical architects, and doesn't favor solution architects, which is almost certainly more what I am, naturally a solution and enterprise architect. My technical architect, architect dies, days died when I did uh, Java 1.5, I think. <laughs> Yeah, it does get quite deep and it is quite sort of deep and broad relative to, to what's there. But I think like we've said, I've known people do it as recently as the last couple of years and, I, and I, I'd, I'd be terrified of having to, to redo that again with how much the platform's grown. The answer's probably not outbound message anymore though, so that's good news. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably new soft now. It's not really held you back, has it? You've, had, you've been CTO at uh, what was, I assume, at the time of Platinum SI in the UK as Make Positive, and now you're CTO at Profile, which is pretty fast growing. Yeah, and I did um, some contract roles in between just for work-life balance. 
So I found that quite nice, not having any responsibilities for a couple of years. And I actually joined ProVisor, again, as a Salesforce SME. I didn't join the CTO. I was actually quite looking forward to not running a team or anything. All I had to do is offer an opinion, help with the roadmap, effectively be a product manager. But we quickly established that things had changed. DevOps became a really important thing. Wade joined Salesforce. He drove the whole DX program. Suddenly, Salesforce were talking about release management. Salesforce were talking about not testing. They're talking about unit testing more. But they were talking about the sort of things we were doing. And customers came to us in droves. So I had to adapt and we had to think about the structure of the business. So yeah, we've had fantastic growth and I've enjoyed every minute of it. And had to learn a lot about other technologies outside of Salesforce. And you get in a bubble with Salesforce and you forget there's things like Docker. You forget AWS, you think, oh, it's all EC2 and S3. Not anymore, it isn't. Suddenly you've got things like Fargate. So even things where, you know, three years ago, if I was building something with AWS, I would have considered Heroku. It's still an option in some cases. But now there are equivalent solutions from Microsoft and AWS that solve the same problems around maintaining environments that Heroku solved many years before, back in 2010. For those that don't know, what would, what's your elevator pitch around ProVar? Like- so we always say uh, ProVar is the test automation solution for Salesforce. It does end-to-end UI and API tests to test an entire business process. So people that are familiar with test automation, they, they might be familiar, like some of the big names out there that agnostic of any that's platform, right. right? Once you try to apply any of those to Salesforce, you quickly start smacking your head against a brick wall. Yeah, so most testing, generic testing tools, and a Selenium framework, say. So if you're a developer, you typically use something like Selenium. Uh, previously, you might have used the Selenium IDE. So that was all good stuff to do back in the sort of early noughties. With things like Salesforce, because so much content is dynamic, and if you think about the ID of a field, most uh, testing tools will bind to an ID because normally an ID is put there by a developer for that reason that is static. With Salesforce, on uh, Visual Force, it's a J underscore ID that changes every time you save the page. In Aura, it's a input dash 44. In LWC, I can't remember what it does, but it's not a robust locator. So every time you deploy that change across your environments, you have to change test script. The alternative approach is to use XPath. And XPath looks at the DOM of the page. In classic, XPath mapping works quite well. It doesn't change very often. It's not really bloated. And then Lightning came along. And Lightning is a single-page app. So the page size is massive in comparison. So people say, oh, testing Lightning's slow. Why is it slow? It's slow because it's a huge amount of information to parse of the structure of that tree. And that's why that became more difficult. So things like Prover, what we did is, one, we bound to metadata. So that if you had a field and that field was account name, we bind to account name. How we then process that execution time is our secret source. But the important thing is that your test will work in classic, it work in lightning, it work in mobile. As long as account name is there, we'll find it. Well, whether you move it around the page or someone Doesn't adds matter. a field above it, below it, whatever. Exactly. So it's not based on position. You can use things like CSS to do some of that as well. But then use CSS and again, classic to lightning, it's not going to work. I assume a lot of people that come to Provar have tried something else. Like they've no, looked at something like about Selenium and, and struggled. Yeah. Or what was the path in? About 80% have totally tested manually. Yeah. Um, what we see is large enterprises, though, generally have invested and they really had teams of QA engineers that were developers. We call them testers, they're not. They're developers like anyone else. 
they're very smart developers that understand detail of pages and structures and shadow DOMs and things like that. And what they know is they spend a lot of time writing and copy and pasting code and fixing tests that break because of other external factors. So those guys get a lot of benefit out of things like Proval because 80% of their work is done for them, but they can still do that 20% if they want to. They can write their custom plugins and locators mm -hmm. and things. The manual testers appreciate Proval because they've never been able to do test automation before. So you're taking someone that's typically has quite a boring job at times, testing the same thing every day or every week or every sprint. And you give an ability to automate that stuff. And those people can now do exploratory testing. So they can go, hang on a minute. Why do I have to go on that page to click that button? Why are the required fields not next to each other? Now, you can't arguably with AI, but at the moment, you can't easily automate that stuff. And that's the value a human can bring. So it's letting them unlock their ability to be intelligent, human intelligence, we call it. Automate the stuff you can automate to give you more time to be human. Exactly. Right? Add the value where you can. So something you talked about previously was how your role changed at Provar as the business was starting to see this groundswell. So what, what do you think caused that or sort of what's do, do you think it's this idea of coming to salesforce and banging the drum about dx or like is, is there more going on that's made kind of testing more important to to enterprises yeah so i think exactly that point if you think when i did salesforce in 2008 it was just sales cloud and occasionally people doing platform a few custom objects the people who were impacted if there was an outage were internal people generally then we had service cloud and you're starting to think okay there's thousands of contact center agents here who'd be affected but that's okay we're going to test things most projects weren't very uh, agile then it was still quite waterfall in my recollection and then 2010 communities i think came out and suddenly we're taking data from salesforce and we're putting it on a website and i want to make sure that the right data is on there and that certain data isn't visible so that was a driver and then gdpr came along and then the other data protection rules come up. So those things have made probably the biggest difference is the, the punishment for companies being blasé about their data security and Salesforce being an enterprise platform, not a CRM anymore. Those things, I think, have driven all those things. Shopping carts running on Salesforce effectively, marketing clouds, emails going out containing dear first name. Those are things people are testing with Prover. I think about how, at Procursive, how we're using Salesforce to, to run our business, not even for our product. To run our businesses, of, of course, we use it for the sales, we use it for marketing. We manage our licenses and subscriptions through it. We put all of our support through it. Um, and we're a relatively small business. As that starts to scale, actually, sort of Provar, what are you? Are you pushing about 100? Pushing 100 people now. And obviously, we, we bought yeah. Precursive as a tool. We've just rolled that out. And I had other, trial, other products or projects in parallel. So I've been doing one to automate trials of Provar. So when people want a trial, they click a button, it's provisioned automatically, they get an email, everything's automated for them. But then the sales team say, I want to know about that event. And I want a project in Precursive when that happens. It's like, now I need to think about, I've got dependency between these two projects. So I need to need to be doing testing internally now. So yeah, even a small company, if you have complex or you have integration or multiple components, or those components are running your business, which is what we both do with our Salesforce, you probably need to make sure you've got either manual or automated testing. Just analyzing that risk, what is the impact of us pushing something out like over the next couple of years? It's something that we'd probably need to take a lot more seriously than we are now, yeah. as we're sort of building more and more on top of that um, and adding more and more products to it. 
even like yourself using products like Precursor for your services team, that, that's the equivalent of managing your ERP or something on, yeah. on Salesforce. If someone pushes an update from a sandbox and suddenly it breaks that whole workflow from sales into your services delivery team, suddenly you've got a lot of people yeah. not knowing quite what to do anymore. Yeah, so we integrate our Salesforce with our Jira. So our development and then QA team use Jira because that's where we've got our backlog and our stories that kind of thing. But our customer service team use Service Cloud. And when they, when they want to escalate something to a developer, we don't want comments that developers making. They're not trained to be customer-facing. You know what developers are like. <laughs> they're, they're good developers. They're not there because they're great customer service people. And we don't want those comments to be exposed. But with the wrong change, it could easily expose that change. So we have to put those checks and balances in place to make sure yeah. that what we're doing is uh, the data stays in the right environments and visible to the right people. So it definitely seems that three years ago, the, the CPQ gold rush. Now, <laughs> we're, we're in the, the Salesforce DevOps gold rush. I agree. And we, we're seeing that. And I think we're going to see a harmonization of tools. If you think across the ecosystem now, I think um, Valid did, from Salesforce did a diagram last month. And it did the whole Salesforce application lifecycle, not as before, which was all developer focused, but it was looking at planning tools. It was looking at process things like Elements Cloud. It was then looking at um, how you then build that out, what your IDE might be. Maybe it's illuminated cloud. Maybe you're using Salesforce DX. Then things like testing. And then you're on to, then I've got my tests. Oh, I've got my builds. How do I deploy them? So tools like Capado and Gearset and AutoRabbit, et cetera. So it actually was a very complete picture for the first time. And then org monitoring, how many people realize they can do org monitoring with these tools. You can actually check for someone changing a validation rule in production at 2 a.m., that could break something, but you want to know that someone's, you know, taken a risk or done an emergency patch. So there's quite a lot of tools in that space now. And I think we're going to see a lot of harmonization and even more interoperability between those tools. So something that we've recently rolled out in, in that space is Clayton. I like Clayton. I think it's a fantastic tool. So again, you should say code scanning, people used to look at the sort of usual tools in the past, but they weren't quite up to the job or they were relying on the free tools that Salesforce made available for the App Exchange, which had limitations. But yeah, I think CodeScan and uh, Clayton are both excellent tools. So something I had a quick look on Provar's website before uh, before we uh, joined the call because just I wanted to I actually wanted to see how your website talked about Provar because it's it's a product that I've been aware of for years but I've, I don't think I've ever hit your landing page and kind of seen how marketing talk about it but there was I think it was actually in the Google results it talks it says Provar helps you navigate the ever changing Salesforce landscape and it made me think it's like that is the point of it like you think about this release i think it's in summer where you've got dynamic forms mm -hmm. which is in beta that must be like a, a huge thing for you guys to consider like, or not even fit well it is huge for you to consider but for customers or people that are having their own test solutions or have built their own test solutions without using Prova, they need to go and solve for this now it's yeah. like a whole new thing i think the the key uh, diet forms we just recently launched that OWC support in a more robust way that was in our last release and actually we started from local development first we started with the most difficult ones first and then went on to how Salesforce had done their uh, pseudo shadow DOM polyfills as the secondary part of that so dynamic form is quite interesting because obviously it's using web components it's generating detailed components which we've always had it's just that they're not being populated from a page layout so you're right we can no longer go to the page layout metadata and know what to expect on a page we have to look and say, uh, what's that? At the moment, um, I'm pretty sure 
until winter 21, there's no packaging support for dynamic forms. So you can build them in a sandbox, but you have to rebuild them in production if you want to ship them. With the packaging support, there'll be metadata that'll be stable. And that's when we can really unlock things. Because what customers have been doing in the past is they want to know which profiles can see which fields by the field level security and the page object, the page layouts. So they've done things like extracting layouts and comparing them. Dynamite Forms changes that game completely along with permission sets. So every single user could have a different visibility of field and every field could be visible depending on the value of any other field or the device type or the application or the, the, the possibilities are incredible. For someone that's looking to build a dynamic page, it's incredible. For a tester, they probably just want to like, just give up. <laughs> I messaged a developer earlier and I said... I even document the requirements. <laughs> exactly. Oh, God, yeah. But I messaged a developer earlier and said, are you feeling under threat with lightning flow triggers and dynamic forms? I think development is really under threat at the moment because admins can do so much with the new low-code tools. So at Percursive right now, we're building a, a new product. I won't talk too much about it, but... One of the things that we are focusing on is how do we develop that for the low-code tool? When we're thinking about UI, we're, of course, thinking about LWC, but we're thinking about how do those Lightning Web components live in a flow? And what are the inputs and outputs of a flow? How, how do we design this so, it's, so that the, the component itself isn't necessarily generating data itself, but it's outputting the selection of a filter that another invocable action can then consume and create the data. So you're passing data on a flow between lightning components, invocable actions to allow customers to create their own flow experiences. We're really of this, of this mind where we, we want to like embrace customers have this expectation. Salesforce customers have the expectation that they want to be able to customize the product, whether it's Salesforce or Percursive or whatever, they've got that expectation. It's what they're buying into. Yeah when they're buying Salesforce. And the low-code tools are really enabling that. It does open up some questions, though, in terms of like the, the, the maintenance, the experience of the person making the decisions. And I think that can be quite tricky with these tools. Yeah, it's one of those things that in the past, I might have started off doing the process builder process. As soon as I could use process builder, I start process builder. It used to be workflow back 10 years ago. But then I, then I hit a blocker. I can't do this, or this isn't going to scale or this is going to cause multiple updates. It's happening too late in the order of execution. So I decided I'll go to code. Now my option is actually I should forget process build. I should go straight to flow. And if I can't do it there, then I'll go to code. But if I've invested and I've already created something beautiful with maybe 60 actions, and then I reach one requirement, what am I going to do? I'm going to write invocable Apex. I'm going to write an Apex trigger as well. So we're back in that whole problem that we solved with design patterns around Apex and multiple triggers. We fixed that. And now with the, the low-code stuff, that's reintroduced that business problem again or technical debt around having things configured in multiple places and not having that single view of what's happening. So there, there is a risk to that, absolutely. Some of these massive flows that you see, I didn't know that low-code is really the right term for it because it is a lot of code it's like it's definitely code i don't think it's low code it's just different code it's visual code the next quite a few developer friends who actually use quite a lot of flow now they've transitioned they understand they could do so much in so little time and they understand their job isn't to create stuff for the sake of it and show off their skills their job is to get the best solution to the customer in the quickest amount of time 
So they are approaching things. They are making things more modular. They are making reusable flows. They are thinking about reuse and they are refactoring flows. But I think one of the problems for admins are admins have like, here, do this and this, I need this, I need that, I need the other. And it's constantly changing. They just don't get Mm -hmm. that ability to think only about one thing for a long time and where it's going to go and and think in a developer mindset about it very often. And that's the challenge with things like that. It's, It's that validation rules. It's so easy to do. And so easy to break everything else when you do it. Yeah. And you can do it in production, of course. I'm, I'm all in on flows. I, I think they're really powerful. And that's why we're, we're, the focus of these Lightning Web components is to work with flows because they're so powerful. And like customers can do so much with them. When I look at a flow that I bring with me, 10 years experience of developing on Salesforce, I think when I that little orange box that inserts those records, I know that's going to do a whole lot of other stuff. With that, that kind of maturity of these kind of low-code solutions and how I've seen Lightning emerge from how it was five years ago, and then we went through the web companion transition, what do you think is the next thing that we're going to see changing on that platform? That's a very interesting question. I've been, I actually asked Salesforce this because I've been, uh, there's a very good video, if you remember, from one of Salesforce birthdays where they went back and it's someone's desktop at Salesforce and they've got their photos and each year it clicks on another year of Salesforce and it shows a different Salesforce UI and it shows uh, all the children growing up and things and the, the stickers, remember those furry things with the tags used to get conferences appearing and disappearing and it's a fantastic video. If you can find it, put it on YouTube, it's, it's fantastic. But as part of that, I noticed that Salesforce UI has a major uplift every five years. And Lightning was 2015. So I was predicting this year to be a major change, and it hasn't happened. Uh, The major change was mobile. The major change was focusing on the mobile. People don't realize, they don't realize Lightning Mobile is huge. It's as big as Salesforce Mobile was when it replaced Salesforce, did we call it Classic Mobile? Can't remember what the old Classic Mobile was called, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's as big as that. So the ability to build for mobile devices, and we're not talking phones. This is what people didn't realize. We're talking Surface tablets. We're talking iPad Pros. Things are changing massively. So designing for those real estate, and do I want a desktop experience or do I want a mobile experience that's more optimized, I think is, is quite changing. COVID has had impact on that. People that were previously field service reps a lot of them aren't, unless they're key workers, weren't working the last few months. So suddenly a lot more people home-based. But I'm sure we'll get back quickly to that point where people will be far more mobile, out and about, and need access in different ways. And I think Salesforce is probably on the back of web components, needs a few years to settle down. I don't think we'll see any major shifts in the way that's working. Probably better offline, I think we'll see that. But I think we'll see other areas like the Tableau and Customer 360 come more prominent. So not so much about the UI, because that kind of works, making sure the other things are more optimized and things like flow uh, and the dev tooling is, is improved. <laughs>